Welcome to The Art of Growth, where we use the Enneagram and the best tools we can find to help you transform. And this is episode three of our new season, 27 panels, each of the subtypes. And a subtype is your dominant instinct combined with your dominant type. And this episode is the social eight. This is the third of the type eight episodes. Next week will be type nine episodes. So this is a lot of episodes in a short amount of time, but we wanted to do that so you could immerse yourself in the instincts and really get to know them. If you haven't listened to it already, do listen to at least the very first episode of the season just called Instincts. It really gives a rundown of what each of the instincts is like, what the energy of it is, and that's really what these are, is we have a relationship to each of the instincts. So we're going to be digging into that today. If you have not yet taken our instincts test, you can do that at theartofgrowth.org. That is the place to find out about the hub of all of our work, corporate training and coaching, group coaching, individual coaching, couples coaching, upcoming classes, newsletter, all of that stuff. So go to the website. If you don't know your Enneagram type yet, you can set up a discovery session with either Joel or I to find out your type, or you can take our free online test. And we always warn people, a little caveat with tests is this is in the realm of personality. So the best way to get a read is to have a person observing you. It seems obvious, but uh, most people think of personality tests as something you do online. But really, the best way to do it is with a person who is trained in that like Joel and I are. With the instincts, though, the test is really effective. So if you want to take the instincts test, and it'll show you where your dominant is, where your secondary or neutral is, and where your repressed or neglected instinct is, the one that needs a little bit work and growth. And that instinctual sequence or stack is what we're talking about with each of the types and each of the subtypes through this whole season. This week, we've had the Self-Preservational 8 podcast, the Sexual 8 podcast, and now this is the Social 8 podcast, of which I am one of them. So I'll be pitching in a little bit more than I am uh, on some of these episodes this season. So let's get into it, my friends. Welcome, everybody, to the Social 8 podcast. I'm so excited to be with our folks here. We're going to begin to look at the type 8 through a different lens than what we've done before, and that is through the instincts. And so for those of you who've already begun listening or following us and, and paying attention to the instincts, this is going to be particularly interesting as we look at how they look different, how 8s all have the same core motivation, but when it comes to the expression of the type, it manifests itself differently depending upon the sphere. So we have three distinct spheres. Uh, you have the instinct of self-preservation, then you have the sexual, and you have the social. And so that's the three that we're going to be going through and exploring that through all the type eights. So this is going to be interesting. We're going to have fun. <laughs> I'm going to have fun. Let's uh, begin by introducing the eight a little bit as a refresher. The type eight has a need to be strong, to deny or not allow weaknesses to take over or the stimulation or the data or whatever's happening in their environment to overtake them. And so there's this sort of amping up the strength and the control to keep that from overwhelming the type eight and from the type eight to be prepared also to face potential challenges and difficulties that will come their way. So there's so much more we can say about the eight, but that gets us started with the description of the type. And now I'm curious to hear from each of you, how does the need for being strong show up 
through the social instinct. And again, the social instinct is reading and interpreting, bonding and affiliating, and thirdly, contributing to others or contributing to the herd. So who would like to begin? I can go first. I've been thinking a lot about the social instinct lately um, because I've just been kind of learning more about the instincts and I have a large family. And so everybody, it's just nice to know where everybody's at. But one of the things I've been noticing about when people talk about the social instinct in all of their types is that they often refer to it as a herd. It's like, we want to talk about the good of the herd and how different actions affect the herd. And I, as a social eight, do not think of it as a herd. I very much think of it as a pack, like a wolf pack, as opposed to a herd, you know, with like a hierarchy and a dominant structure. And I find that I innately, when I walk into a room with people that I haven't met before or people that I do know, I am always checking to see who is the dominant person. I want to know where the strong people are and where the weak people are. And weak doesn't necessarily mean like, I think less of them, but I'm like, who needs to be protected and who is dominant and where do I fit in the pack hierarchy? And I'm very happy usually with whatever position that is. It's usually not at the bottom. I'm just saying, but I definitely pay attention to that energy and don't think of it as a herd. Definitely think of it as a pack. I love that. That's so insightful. I'd I'd love to hear from Jim or Shailushi, what do you guys think? Lisa, I totally agree with you. And it didn't really click in for me until you said that. Because yes, it is about us as a whole, but it's not loosely affiliated, you know, individuals that just happen to be running together. For me, being a social aide is about my people, right? So we're Mm -hmm. in this together. It's not like, oh, some people break off and do whatever. Uh Uh-uh, we're in it together. And the idea is together we are stronger. So we can withstand any challenges that come our way. We can support each other and really, you know, sort of grow and prosper and thrive. So I like that idea of the wolf pack. And I also agree, I'm one of those people that I'm not necessarily even consciously thinking you know, who's, who's running game here. But that's almost always what I think when I walk into a room, who's on top, who's in the middle, who's being, you know, sidelined, who's running the room. And what is my role in balancing that power? Right. Yeah. Uh, How do I help people who are struggling come up and how do I push back a little bit people who are dominating so that everyone's got a chance to thrive? So interesting. Wow. Hmm. Well, hi, this is Jim from The Art of Growth. And uh, (laughs) I have to say something because I am a social aid. So I am definitely speaking into this. And it's interesting how you guys are saying it. You think of it more as a wolf pack. There is a picture in my mind when I think about the we in when I think of the herd. And it's these like large buffalo. Like (laughs) it's, It's just weird how like we have these different images that come to mind because how the need to be strong shows up in the social instinct for me is often in the direction of the bonding and affiliating for me. It is who's my people and how do I strengthen them? So a lot of it goes towards not so much like the top and the bottom. I don't think very much in hierarchy. I'm a very much a flat leadership kind of a thinker. I tend to think a little more flat as far as power structures, but I still look at who needs to be empowered. So 
you know, who's leading their little, their little uh, part of the herd and how do I strengthen them? So I'm always saying, you know, how do I use my strength, my power to empower others to be more powerful in the, what they're trying to do? It is externally focused. Now, the low side of that is I always look at that as something that's up to me. So everyone is mine to defend, everyone is mine to protect, and everyone is mine to empower. And if I'm not able to empower them, I'm somehow a failure. Um, so there's all of these like adjacent little things that go along with it, because it still goes with the eight mechanism of it's all up to me. I have to do it. It is dependent upon my strength to an extent that is not only unrealistic, but unhelpful and unbeneficial to those around me. But the mechanism applies itself in that way towards the empowerment of others so that they can then protect their herds. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I so, that resonates with me so much. You know, the work I do right now, going into nonprofit organizations and helping them plan for their next permanent executive director. One of my great joys is helping staff and coaching them up and seeing them take on work that they didn't feel confident in doing before. So when I see someone blossom like that, it gives me, it's such a thrill. Mm. It it is such a thrill to be like, yeah, that I was able to use my strength and my power to empower and strengthen somebody else. And right. And then that has a ripple effect that maybe they'll go out and then strengthen other people, or they'll be able to share their gifts with someone else instead of feeling scared to do that. Yeah. It's almost like the voice of the social eight is I know what you're capable of and I'm going to shove you into doing it. Um, (laughs) Sometimes that is a way it's experienced by them. And they're like, is this a loving push? I'm like, you can do it. And they're like, but you're Tough making love. me. <laughs> Tough love is a real thing. Absolutely. If I didn't love you and I didn't care about you, I wouldn't care about your development. Yeah. I'd be like, you go live your life and do your thing because right. I don't care about you. But if I do care, then I might push a little bit. Yeah. It shows or I believe it. in you, right? right? I believe in you. Yeah. If I didn't, I wouldn't waste my time with you. Right. Exactly. Yeah. This is sometimes what I have to let others who are not type eights know when they're working closely with a type eight is when you get that push and that feedback and that challenge, it's not because they're not invested or don't care. (laughs) It's precisely the opposite. That's always a a surprise. It's always, oh, really? I took it as, you know, I'm I'm doing a bad job and they're trying to tell me to, they're coming down on me or something. So that's that's, uh, really good to hear. Talk about the other mechanisms of control or the other aspects of control. So you have the control that is used to benefit, to raise up people, to challenge people. What about the other parts that sometimes AIDS talk about, which is I tend to feel like there's so much coming at me that I need to feel some measure of control over myself and over my world, lest I fall prey to the control of others. That's so tough. I mean, it's tough because... To me, that gets right at the core of what the fear is, that I need to be able to handle everything so nobody tries to handle it for me. I want to do things the way I want to do them. I mean, I said recently to someone, I think I'm my own best counsel. And so Mm -hmm. I I want the freedom to be able to pursue my goals or interests or whatever exactly the way I want without having someone else lay that on top of me and then being obligated to do so. 
Um, and I think that's part of the motivation of like taking on so much to be like, no, no, I got this. Not only do I have this, look at how much I have. I have so much stuff going on. I do not need someone to tell me what to do. I got it under control. Mm. I think I come at it a little bit different. I love being the second in command. In a lot of the areas that I'm involved in, I do end up as the second in command. And I love that because if I have a strong leader, and that doesn't always mean eight-like, because probably my two favorite people I've ever worked under, one was a ADD7, and one was a kind and gentle, soft gentleman. I have no idea what his number would be. I can't even begin to guess, but he was, he could have come across as kind of weak, but he was one of the finest leaders I've ever known because everything he did was for the good of the team or the good of the pack. And because I respected their leadership, I was thrilled to be their number two, because I feel like the second in command, we're the ones who execute the plans. We get to do what needs to be done. And we still get the privilege of being involved in the decision-making usually. So it's kind of like you have the ear of the king and also you get to do what needs to be done, but you kind of, there's this tiny little buffer of protection. If you're not the top dog, you don't always have to be the bad guy. You're just like, I'm just doing what I was told to do. I happen to agree with it 100%, but it's like, I like that position. I love being under a strong leader. I will say though, if I'm under a weak leader, I either have to remove myself or I find that I take over and I become, I just kind of try to take over. And then I have to ask myself, is this mine to control? And if the answer is no, then I have to back off. But that is something that has been a hard lesson to learn. For sure. Yeah, I love that. It's so funny because... I don't want to be King Arthur. I want to be Merlin. Uh, that's that's right, who I yeah. am. Like, I'm not Luke Skywalker. I'm Obi-Wan. Like, it's so funny. I talk about the things that actually make me emotional, the things that really touch my heart. Like, this is who I am. And I'm like, one of my favorite movies is Moana. <laughs> it might be <laughs> my favorite movie. And I'm not Moana, though. I'm Grandma. Like, I'm totally the one who's saying, like, do you know who you are? And, like, calling out the good in you and saying, like, you can do this kind of thing. But there is the other mechanism because I'm never as like cool and suave as those people because there is this like, it's all up to me mechanism and I I have to handle it all. And the real downside of that I've been experiencing and, and I've been more honest about lately with people in my circle than I've been before, just saying like, here's a crappy thing that's going on with me because I've always felt like it's my job to be strong so I can never say I need help. And the really awful thing I realized after I sat with a couple of friends recently and I said, this is what's going on with me. They said, we feel like we're finally getting to know you because you've always seemed like so solid. And I had to admit through a horrible moment of like, oh, I feel like I'm not as good of a friend if I ever need anything from you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just to clarify all this stuff coming at me and look, I have it all is really in my personal life, Mm. in my work life. I have learned the hard lesson to, you know, to admit vulnerability as a leader, especially given what I do to step in for nine months to a year and, you know, engineer some mini turnaround, fix problems and, and set it up for the next person. I know I don't know everything and I can lead with, I'm here for a year. I don't know everything. And I'm going to lean on all of you to help me. But in my personal life, I very much resist people telling me what to do. And my mom especially says I was like this from the get-go. I mean, from the time I could talk, 
it was like, why, why, why are you telling me to do that? Why I needed a reason. And because I said, so was never good enough for me. So what? So you say so, which is, I imagine very hard for a mom to hear from a three-year-old. So, uh, <laughs> right. right you're just trying nodding. to get your kid to do something and <laughs> the kid's like, why? But yeah, in my, in my professional life, it's much more, I can lead with vulnerability because it's clear. I don't know what's happening. But I agree with you both. I've always, you know, my sister wanted me to run for office and said, I don't want to run for office. I want to be chief of staff. Right, exactly. Oh, yep. yeah, gotcha. Uh-huh. Yeah, so this is part of, it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that's part of the mechanism also for self-protection when it comes to the issue of vulnerability. So if you're exposing yourself in a way that, like, I need help, no, I can't do it all, <laughs> that then it exposes you to vulnerability, maybe being taken advantage of, would you say it that way? That then if you're weak, then you might be... I don't think I could name it as afraid that I was going to be taken advantage of. I think I would just name it as scary, 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 something bad will happen. Like I can't name <laughs> it, like honestly, like it just, it's instinctual, it's automatic, it's reactionary. It's not yep. that clever of verbiage. <laughs> Oh, I always just think you can't be strong for the pack if you're crying all the time. It's exhausting when people are just led by their feelings all the time. And, you know, if you're vulnerable, that means you're exposing your feelings. You can't lead people effectively if they can't rely on you. So stop crying. That's basically how I feel about yeah. vulnerability. I'm like, what is this vulnerability you're talking about? I don't even understand this vulnerability you speak of. No. Yeah. And I laughing when Jim was saying scary, 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 because I think, Joe, when you said that, it was really a gut feeling like like a pit of stomach feeling like mm -hmm. what's going to happen? I don't know, but the world is going to end. Yeah. I can't tell you how sure. the world is going to end, but it's an end of the world thing for me. Because mm -hmm. um, there's so actually there are so many ways that things could go sideways and the vulnerability, like the ongoing vulnerability opens yourself to the slow knife. You open yourself up to the slow knife, which is the worst. So you've always got to be on guard for the slow knife. Yeah, I get a buddy of mine who's an eight. He says, he's got this saying, like, I'd rather die standing up than on my knees. And it's like, yeah, I get you. So this, this speaks to the issue also of like, you know, that's why you need control. It's because of this core um, resistance to vulnerability. But I like the way you said it, and that is the existential, I describe that as the existential experience that each type has with whatever, whenever you get to that core, it's like, I can't articulate exactly what's going on, but it feels like this is the end. I'm dying, you know, so that's really good. Let's talk about the need for or desire for intensity within the eight. So the desire to take on a big challenges, the stimulation, the stuff that gets your energy high. How does that show up? This is going to be interesting to walk through all the all three subtypes and see in what way does that manifest itself in that sphere? So how does it show up in the social? I know for me, I am either all in or I'm all out. There is no middle ground. And if I'm going to learn something, I'm going to learn everything. If I'm going to avoid something, I'm going to avoid every appearance of that thing. And it's a little, it can be a little intense and it catches people off guard sometimes, especially my pack or my family, it's like one of the reasons I don't play board games. It's not my thing. And um, I can't just play a game and have it be social. I can't have that. I either have to destroy my enemies 
or I have to just, or I can't play. I just have to be part of the team. And unfortunately, my enemies, when you're playing a game, are people I love. So I don't want to destroy them. There's no, there's just no middle ground. And so it's kind of like, I have to go all out for the team or I have to not play. Mm. Yeah. I don't play board games, particularly with my spouse. I do play with my kids. There's an incident from approximately 17 years ago that I'm still (laughs) upset about. (laughs) Still gets talked about. Uh, about a board game where I was like, that's not a thing. And then he's like, yes, it's the thing. And he won by that many points. Still a problem. Um, for me, it doesn't show up so much like that. The intensity comes from causes. I want to help people. I want to protect people. I want to attach myself to issues, right? So for the longest time, I worked in reproductive justice issues you got to protect that. That's really important. And I want to be out there on the front lines fighting the good fight. I've worked in DV. I've worked in a lot of fields where it's, there are people who need our help. There are people who are struggling and it's up to us slash me. Usually us means me in that case to do the work. I have to get in there. I have to this is my calling. I think that's almost where it ends up being like, this is my calling. This is my passion. It's a social passion to fix the world in some way. Mm. I can't do and that. You don't just do it at a little bit. You do it at a, you go, that intensity yeah. just gets manifested in that social cause. Like yeah. you take all of it on. Yeah. It is an all in thing, though that is absolutely true. That I'm like, I'm doing this and I'm totally doing this. And I'm top to bottom and left to right in that space. I will give money. I will walk picket lines. I will write letters. I'll do everything I possibly can until I am done. Then, I'm, then it's over. And I work a little bit more like I can't do the large scale social justice just because I get overwhelmed. I feel completely inadequate and it makes yeah. me go to my five and just say, no, I'm done. I'm just going to go buy myself a little cabin in the woods and live there forever and not talk to anybody ever again. But I like a more of a small scale and still in a social instinct perspective. When I was like in my teens, I went to this conference and it was like a use for Christ conference. And one of the speakers there was talking and he said, you'll never understand the incredible power of one changed life. So that has stuck with me forever. And even though I'm still a social person, I like to think of it, if I can affect change in my children, and then if I can affect change in my children's friends. So it's kind of like an ever widening circle of influence as opposed to a large scale social justice. And I really respect the people who go for that large scale social justice um, involvement, but I can't do that. I have to do it on a smaller scale, still socially. So I still invite all my children's friends in my house. It's kind of a going joke that mom and this what will feed you no matter what. If you come over to my house, expect to be fed. And then I also have a rule. If, you're in, if I feed you three times, you have to do chores because now you're part of my pack. Nice. And so it's like, it's a little bit of a smaller scale, but it's like that overwhelming social justice. It's like, sometimes you feel like, oh man, I wish I had that, but I don't. And I'm okay letting you do it. You go for it, man. <laughs> yeah, I'm the same way. It's a lot more on a, an individual or a group basis since we started doing like group coachings it's like one of my favorite things like I've ever done in my life it's just this amazing thing to like have people not only 
experience the group, but have them experience each other. And there's all of this kind of stuff going on. And there's an intensity that kind of comes up in, in me. I always tell people to like pay attention to their tears. Like what is it that like sets you off? And I don't normally feel tears of that intensity of emotion in anything sad or anxious or anything like that. I feel it when someone's having a breakthrough. When I'm seeing someone go from point A to point B and they're like owning their life and they're stepping up. And that is just like all of, I can feel it on my skin. I can feel it on my face. It's just like this intensity of just like my whole body saying yes to something. And I just like want to like come through the screen at them. It's like, yes, yes. And I did that, you know, to my daughter earlier because she like completed this complicated homework thing like really fast. And I was like, like shaking her off. Like, yes, you did it. And it's like this, it's just like <laughs> yeah. that, that intensity kind of comes up. And I think it's so funny because I've been thinking a lot more about how it's within the stories we tell ourselves. Like what are the stories I tell myself? And I recognize that one of the stories I always tell myself is I'm much more concerned with having an impact and making a good impression. So mm-hmm. because of that, I'm like, there's an intensity to that. It's like, it's relational. It's externally focused. It's about others. And it's clear that like, I'm not here just to be your buddy. I'm here to make you better or die trying. (laughs) Yeah, that I totally relate to. Yeah, absolutely. Let's finish with kind of a big question, but this would be very helpful, I think, for understanding how the social instinct plays itself out through and matches up with the eight. And this is where many have described the social eight as the countertype of the eight, meaning that it softens some of the aspects of the eight. It works to dampen maybe some of the extreme edges that may come out uh, through other instincts. So think about reading and interpreting, think about bonding and affiliating, and think about contributing to the whole. When you're thinking about that first one, reading and interpreting, does the fact that you can read and interpret what's happening in your circle, that your attention goes to people and maybe not to just simply the physicality of the space around you and executing things. Does the reading and interpreting cause you to then take a second, like, okay, you know, rather than going in this direction, I'm picking up on something and there's a sense of maybe responsibility to the group. Could you maybe speak to that? That comes out a lot for me in, I don't want to say social situations since we're talking about being a social instinct, but in casual group settings where I'm with friends or family and I can feel a vibe, you know, it's like you could just feel the energy off someone or something that someone's unhappy or someone's feeling left out or there's a disagreement. I also have a fairly large family. I'm the oldest of four in my immediate family, but I have my dad's one of six and my mom's one of four. And so my extended family is really large. And so those family gatherings, you know, before used to be a lot of like, who's feeling what, what's going, why is that person, they got a weird look on their face. Do I need to go talk to them? Can I bring them back in? Do we need to resolve something? Who's like, really, really sensitive to energy and nuance in people's faces, right? My daughter especially thinks I cannot see the mean eyes that she gives me when she thinks I'm not looking. And I'm like, I see them. I have a 13 year old. It's like, I see, I, and, and not only do I see it, it's radiating off of you. I know it's there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in group settings or in, you know, one-on-one, but certainly in group settings, like knowing who's, who's feeling in and who's feeling out and who's unhappy and who's not, you know, who's feeling upset and all those things. Like, and how do you resolve that? So everyone can have a fun time. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes more broader than just the narrow, like what has given me the, the intensity and the excitement. It kind of goes out a little yeah. bit more. So yeah. for me, yeah. yeah, it's more of a give and take in that space. What comes to mind for me when I look at the reading and, and interpreting part is how I grew up and I was always able to read other people, but I didn't know how to respond to it. So I felt like I was taking in a lot of data as far as people's energy. I could read people's energy. I could read people's body language and then really struggling with knowing how to respond to it. Like, what do I do in this situation? So there was like a real, almost like a social awkwardness in that I could see it all, but I had no idea how I was coming across because I couldn't see me and I couldn't understand how people were experiencing me. Like I had no idea that I was intimidating in certain circumstances or too loud or too much or too much intensity or too obnoxious or over the top. Like I couldn't read that. And then I'd read people's response and I'm like, oh, that's not working. And then I'd like shrink back. And it was this really weird push and pull. And I remember it just being something that I would almost sit in the room and study and I'd watch how other people would respond to each other. So I remember being, you know, elementary school, junior high, and like watching like the person who could be funny in the room and how other people were responding to them and like, how were they kind of reading that? And I remember just from a very early age, uh, like observing, reading and interpreting it all. But I was, I was reading and it, it took a long time for the interpreting to come onto view. Like I really didn't understand it. And then it took, you know, another decade to actually have any kind of clue how I was being experienced by other people. So it almost was like, reading and then much later there was the interpreting and then much later where there was the capacity to do the bonding and affiliating piece and then finally it could come on to being a contribution to others so like those are how it's listed when it talks about the instincts but i feel like it literally evolved through that process for me like the social instinct would have always been there but it started with reading took a long time to interpret and then took a little longer to really figure out bonding, who's my people, and then longer to move into that contribution to others. Mm. Yeah, I um, agree with all of that. Yes, to everything. It's like, I don't know, I didn't realize other people didn't read other people. It's like, oh man, they were really sad. And they're right. like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you didn't see that? How did you not notice that? And so same thing. So reading has always been kind of innate. And then interpreting, of course, the older you get and the more situations in life you experience, it's easier to interpret things. I find like this weird calmness comes over me oftentimes when I'm in a situation where there might be tension. It's like, I don't know why, but I, it's almost like I chill out and my own energy comes down and I love to just say what needs to be said that nobody is saying. And sometimes it can be tense but again, sometimes through conflict comes growth. You can't grow if you never have conflict or confrontation. And so I'm like, let's yeah. deal with this now at a small level rather than let it go on for a week or a month or a year or years. And then you have some real things to fix. So yeah. I very much 
yeah. feel like it's almost my job is to when if there is tension and nobody is addressing it, I'm like, I will address it. I'm not afraid of that tension. I'm not afraid of that whatever. And then sometimes you don't have to do anything else. If you can just facilitate the conversation, even that brings bonding, because now suddenly everybody's communicating and we all know what we're yeah. what we've said. Is that really what we meant? Because sometimes things get said and they are said in a way that they weren't really what you meant. So we have clarity and then we can bond all the day long. Yeah. And that bonding does soften the eight, like for sure. Yeah. That desire to affiliate, to connect, to to bond. It does tend to soften the rough edges yeah. of I don't care because there's this weird tension yep. in me because like I really do care about the group and want everyone to do that. And then there's like this eight part of me who's just like, I'm very self-referencing and if you disagree, yeah. you're wrong and, you know, tough shit. Like there is yeah. definitely that kind of going on internally sometimes. This is what's so fascinating because the instinct, when it matches up with the type, there are places of conflict. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the internal war. Like, you know, part of you wants to do this and the other part says, you know, no, I don't. And for sure. So, yeah, it's really good. And, and it does soften. I can see how bonding in a, that bonding piece would soften. That's where also the social aids tend to be more friendly, tend to have more friends, tend to want to keep long-term relationships. So that explains a lot of how that would work against the sort of self-referencing. Uh, it's all about, you know, whatever I think and whatever I want. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. Friendship, I yeah. would say, is the absolute centerpiece of my life. Like, I always talk about friendship being the most important thing. Like, even in my marriage, like, I have a good marriage because I have a good friendship with my wife. I'm mm-hmm. a parent now. If I want a long-term relationship with my kid, it will have to evolve into a friendship. I can pick people out who I'm going to be lifelong friends with in a matter of seconds. I've literally picked people out of a crowd and been like, I want to get to know them. And the word friends 20 years later, 30 years later, I literally have people in my yeah. life who I've known for 90% of my life because it's like, and once- those are the people, those are the people that you never no time has passed, even if no, you're not together. Totally. Yeah. 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 It's instantaneous because they are, they're just a part of you. It's just kind of like, And I can pick up that connection right where I originally spotted it. And I can't even name it because it's not even always interests or similarities. Like that's almost irrelevant. Like some of my best friends, I have almost nothing in common with other than when we talk and when we get together, when we spend Mm -hmm. time, it's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The bonding and affiliating, I'd say, if there's something strongest in a social eight, that's a part of the three social sub instincts, I guess, that is strongest for me. Mm-hmm. I love to get to know people. I love networking. Mm-hmm. It's one of my favorite things to do, right? Because it's one, it's very hanging out, social, talking to people, social, but it's a like, what do you have that my group could need? Do you need to be part of my group? Like that's a bit of the thinking behind it. Like what skills do you have? Where are you, you know, where do you work? Is this a valuable connection for me to have? But even more so the great thrill is to actually make that connection. Oh, you should talk to this person. I love that. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's like the best thing professionally, but even more so personally. Right. So when I can I know a lot of people have like, I don't want my two groups or multiple groups of friends in the room. That's like my dream. I love it so much when all of my friends are in the same room because it gives me a chance, one, to be with them and to strengthen the overall pack, right? Like we're all here together. But then if I can get one person to connect with someone else outside of me, you know, that's again, another strengthening of this pack. 
Well, now these two people are invested in each other. We're all invested in this pack. And ultimately, those two people are invested in me. So it's we all strengthen each other. Well, if someone's failing, it's not just up to me or someone's struggling, I should say, not just up to me to help them. People I trust and care about will also help them. Yeah. So that's another way of like sort of bringing the whole pack up, making the whole pack stronger is to connect people that I care about with each other and see them connect. I have a question for you on that, Shay Lushi, because like I am definitely the crossroads where multiple sections meet. And that is for sure. Like I am the network connector in a lot of ways, but it's almost like the way you described it. You almost, I almost pictured like a networking event where you're walking up and talking to lots of different people. And I hate that. Like I hate being in a room full of people and going around and talking to a bunch of different people. So is, was that the kind of thing you were talking about? Sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I definitely don't mind business networking as much as you seem to Jim. I don't like Um, it at all. (laughs) uh, Because for me, it is, it becomes like, it's a calculation. I'm not doing it because I think I'm going to meet some wonderful person, have some fantastic conversation. It's going to be so much fun. It's a calculated set of activities around who do I need to know here and what can they do for me or the things I care about? Someone in the room has got some resources in one way or the other. Either they you know, are connected to someone, they've got money to give to a cause I care about, maybe they have a job for me or a job for someone that I care about, right? And that's part of that like networking thing, which is I'm not, it's very strange. I don't even necessarily do it for myself, but I'm like, who can I meet who might know something about that could help someone I care about? Cool. Yeah. Lisa. I actually love networking, but I think I love having conversations with people and finding out interesting things. And I like tiny snippets. It would be like if networking were tweeting and you're in a group of people and you're talking to them, you find these little pieces of information and then you're like, oh, wait, I just heard something similar from somebody else over here. And now I want to connect you. I love that. That's my favorite. And I also love when people don't know I'm an eight. It's kind of like I had the ultimate compliment one day, a friend of mine and I who have, we haven't seen each other for like five years. We took a walk in the park and we were chatting and I said, so are you familiar with the Enneagram? She goes, oh yeah, I'm a one with a two wing. And I'm like, oh, awesome. And she said, what are you? And I said, I'm an eight. And she's like, what? I never would have guessed. And I'm like, yes, I win. (laughs) Because I know that I can also be scary. I mean, like I've had people tell me that you're kind of scary when you're intense. And I'm like, ah, I know. But if I can connect people, and kind of, you know, work the scene a little bit without them knowing that I'm doing any of that. I'm like, yay, yeah. that's great. Covertly. I like that. Covert. <laughs> yes. We don't like to call it manipulating. No. We like to call it creative personal engineering. <laughs> we call it. Yeah. I love that explanation. It's, it's very, very helpful in understanding what's going on. Even what you were saying, Shay Lushi, in terms of the strategy of, you know, you're not wasting your sort of energy, just kind of, hey, let's bounce around and, and have fun. It, it's, you've got a direction, you know, you've got a goal, you've got an agenda. So that's helpful. Let's pivot to the next instinct. We're calling that the sort of neutral or the second instinct in your sequence. So you start out with the one that's dominant. Which one for each of you is your second, your neutral instinct? And how do you use it? <laughs> well, my second instinct is the sexual instinct. And when I took the test that you sent me, Joel, they actually came out almost even. So my social was just a titch higher than the sexual. And I use it all the time, but it's something that I put on when I need it. 
it's kind of like reading the energy of a situation. If I think the sexual instinct is better suited for a particular thing, I will put it on, but it's definitely something that Mm. I have to do on purpose. It's not innate. I have to choose to do that. And I am a big fan of flirting, but not like creepy, skanky flirting. I'm thinking more like, you know, it's like direct eye contact and smiles. And you give somebody your full attention and it's like you're communicating to them, you're important to me. And that could be the waiter in a restaurant. It could be my husband. It could be my friend. But I mean, like when you draw people into you, when you need to do that, then you do it. Or you use body language, you know, hands on your hips, stand up straight, make yourself bigger. If you need to protect somebody, or if there's a perceived threat, and I'm like, I do that innately, I'll mm. just stand up a little taller, put my hands on my hips, and I'll sway even. It's like calm. Everything's calm. Everything's fine. But I'm like, I want you to know that I'm a threat to you if I need to be a threat to you. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like, that's kind of, I think, how I usually access a little bit more of that sexual instinct. Hmm. It's great. I am also a, my second is also sexual. So my stack is social and then sexual. And yeah, I agree with what Lisa said. It's, although the, the difference is, is much greater. It's, I'm like almost 100% social, like 98 or something. And then like 60 something percent sexual. So my sexual instinct, there are times when I just love that. I, to this day, I remember when I met my best friend and it was immediate and it was just like you were saying, Jim, like, I just knew that it was going to just go. We were going to be together. You know, we were going to be best friends forever. But also that like the experience of getting to know someone that deeply is joyful. If it's the right person to have that, like there is no one else in the world, but the two of us. And every time I get to spend time with her, it's like that. I mean, to the point where when I go to visit her in California, I have to go a day or two early spend time with her only. So the rest of my friends aren't like, why are you guys not talking to anyone else? Like, cause we can just get so wrapped up in each other. It's also, I find that I'm able to use that instinct to serve my social instincts. So part of building a pack, part of building a network is to draw people in and to make them feel important and valuable within your network. You are important to me. I want you in my group you know, grab some by the scruff and be like, let's go, right? You, you have to lure them in. That sounds awful. <laughs> like I'm saying, it's true. It's true. But like you have yeah. to draw people in and show them they are important and that you want them to be a part of your group by caring about who they are. It's not quite that calculated when I do it, but it really sounds very like mega mind, like master manipulator. What's more hindsight, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I reflect on it, that's how it feels to me, or that's what I think about. Like, I'm not doing that when I'm connecting with someone. Yeah, I wish I could provide a little variety here, but unfortunately, I'm the same. (laughs) I'm the same. Yeah, sexual is my neutral. And, you know, it serves the bonding and affiliating. But it's so funny. I don't think it's as quite as high um, as some you know, when it comes to that charisma of like, yeah, hey, like being in front of people, I was always totally fine in front of crowds. And so I used that draw you in kind of thing in a more public social context than I ever did one-on-one. I was always clueless if a girl was interested in me growing up. Years later, I'd be like, what? I had no idea because I was friends with everybody. 
like friend was first seventh grade. And I'm talking to Becky on the phone and I thought she was the cutest girl, but I was like, I was watching all my friends and they would like date someone and talk to them on the phone for a month and break up because it's middle school. And then they'd have to start all over again. I was like, I don't want to do that. So I would just keep the same people, but I'd keep it a lot more in the social realm. I'll always remember when Joel and I like were first studying the instincts and we went to this workshop and there was like different exercises for each of the instincts. So when we were on the sexual part, there was a point where everyone gets in a circle and they put on some music and each person's supposed to go in the middle and dance. And, you know, like some of the sexual subtypes would be like, yeah, it felt really good to be out there. And some of the self-pres or, or the, the ones who neglected instinct with sexual was like, I was really uncomfortable in the middle. I was like, I just, I just didn't care. Sure, I'll jump out there and dance. No big deal. I don't need to. I jump back. It just feels very neutral to me. So when I heard that instinct described as neutral, I was that that's about the best representation as far as how I feel about that. It's just, it's very present. I'm good with it. I love a sizzling, deep conversation. I think leaning into that in you know, coaching, especially like there's that sizzle, that exchange. I'm like really pouring into you. There's an intensity to that. It's great, but I'm not like buzzing about it afterwards. I'm like, okay, moving mm -hmm. on. You know, it doesn't stay with me. It just kind of goes through me. Yeah. Mm. Joel, I also mm -hmm. wanted to note that, you know, we didn't talk about risk and the sexual instinct as one of those sub instincts, I guess. But like, I find that the eightness in me comes into play most, like the sexual eight part of that comes in with risk. That I like to take risks that I'm ready to take, right? That like I have made the calculation on whether that's a good risk, but I'm always like, let's do something new. Let's do something fun. Let's do something exciting. This January to February stretch is like the worst for me because everything is so gray and blah and boring. And like this, this has been even tougher because it's been all inside all the time. But right about now, I'm like, let's go skydiving. Like I'm afraid of heights, but that's where like the, the intensity and the instinct comes together, which is like, I need to do something that's exciting and new and it pushes my boundaries so that I'm not just in the same place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this is only a podcast. We could do a class on this and it would get into how the different aspects of your type can kind of start to move in an area that would enhance perhaps or mirror an instinctual drive. So the, and you just illustrated that perfectly. You know, with the need for intensity as an eight, they will tend to take more risks than a lot of other types would. Absolutely. And, and that would come from that need for intensity, that need for stimulation, something different, something new, something enjoyable. But, you know, within that, we would also look at, compare that to, say, a sexual eight, and you're going to have that enhanced even greater. So, so that's, a, that's a good point you bring up. Let's look at the neglected instinct and three questions. Which one is it? Which is obvious here because none of you have self-pres as your second or neutral. Um, what problems has it caused you? And then if you want to answer it this, in the same breath, how have you learned to grow through it? That uh, would also be very interesting. The, this one has been brutal. Yeah. I think because of just the reaction that it created to me, anything that was self-preservational, it felt like an attempt at control, which I pulled away from. 
And I don't know why, because sometimes it's just like, like the first time someone used the phrase, a budget is not a prison, it's a tool. I was like, oh, I feel free now and I can create a budget. But so many of the things about, you know, self-preservation, you'll take care of yourself. So make sure you're getting diet and exercise. I was like, you're trying to control me. Is like, that's the reaction. I would just pull back from it and be like, I don't want to do that. Um, or I'll do it however I want to. And eventually it's like, okay, I got to figure out how to do this and have it be fun. But there's still this thing is like, you can't have that. This isn't good for you. Stop trying to control me. I want it. Like that is the internal reaction to some of the, the self-pres mechanisms of wanting to take care of yourself and nest and all that stuff. I'm like, I don't care what kind of a place I live in. I try to keep it clean, but I don't care if it's a shoebox. Like, it's just not that important to me. Like, is this bed comfortable enough for you? I'm like, I don't care. Just throw me on the floor with a mat. I'm fine. What do I care? Like, it's just not something that I pay attention to. And it's been amazing how I have started doing that work, you know, a couple of years ago and realizing, oh, this is my neglected instinct. And so I was like, well, now I have to kind of be in control of that. So I need to engage this. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the instructions when I install this air conditioner. And that was like just the starting point for me. And I remember when I did that one day and I was like, I'm going to read the instructions. And my wife and I had been talking about it. And she goes, you've never been sexier. It's like just taking care, taking care of the little things, paying attention to the details, making sure that the home is okay, taking care of these kinds of items. It was, it's definitely been developed, but now it's led to a lot of a much better life in terms of the areas that were not intentional. We talk about this at The Art of Growth all the time, being on default versus living by design. And ultimately what I learned is so many of the areas of self-pres, I was just on default mode. It was either resistance or whatever I wanted instinctually. It didn't have a lot of thought behind it or intention. And so the growth pattern is then to make that more intentional. Then you mentioned all three of the subcategories there, the issue of health and well-being and uh, resource management, so things like budgets and, and then the nest, the home, installing an air conditioner. So yeah, it, it's, it's yep. those three yep. aspects that for most of us, if it's our neglected center, if we have one of those moderately, <laughs> we're doing pretty well. So yeah, it can be something that is creates a lot of reaction within us. So I appreciate that. That was a good description of that reaction that I think we all feel in our neglected instinct. Shailusha Lisa, what about you? Jim, I appreciated how you were talking about like, don't control me. You know, it took me a long yeah. time to understand, for example, why I have a hard time sticking with an eating plan that I myself have told myself I'm going to do. <laughs> totally. Right? And then uh, so I'm like, yep, I'm doing this. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to eat sugar because sugar <laughs> makes me, you know, I'm having issues with that. It's really bad for me. I know it's bad for me. But I'm not going to control gonna me. <laughs> right, right. And then like literally two weeks later, I was like, why am I doing this? How dare I tell myself what to do? That's exactly. almost the thing that goes it's on only- in my mind. And I have to constantly reframe those things to it's not a have to i'm choosing to do this but anything that feels like a have to and that's i feel like where the self-preservation i end up pushing myself to the limit of the have to instead Mm -hmm. of what am i choosing to do that reframe has been really really helpful for me because it puts that control back on me actually i could eat candy all day long if i wanted to am i going to be happy that way? Is that going to feel good? No. And actually it's going to cause problems for my ability to do other things. 
And that, I think I've talked about this, certainly not on the podcast, but I've talked about it with <laughs> the both of you and maybe even you, Lisa, is that a couple of years ago, I had a really serious health issue. I was in the hospital for five days. I'm on ongoing medication and management for you know a form of endometrial cancer. And that was my wake-up call on self-preservation, which is nobody else is going to be able to do any of this but me. Nobody can eat right for me. Nobody can exercise for me. Nobody can get enough sleep. Nobody right. can manage their stress for me except for me. And me not doing it now has serious long-term consequences. Mm. So that was a very rude awakening to the fact that I am not all-powerful and never, you know, that I can't just go for 24-7 all the time. I do actually need to take care of myself. But that question of what is mine to do and what can only I do for myself, I've really had to center that. And that's been very helpful thinking about not just personal self-preservation stuff like, oh, I need to sleep. I'm tired. You know, I need a break, whatever it is. Even things like, should I be involved in this conflict? Do I need to get involved? Do I need to mediate? Do I have to be protective? Right. Or can someone else do that? Yeah. Um, right? Yeah, that's good. I yeah agree with you on everything. It's like, first of all, nobody is going to tell me what to do. Just nobody is. But I also don't know when I have done enough. I don't know when enough, where enough is yet. You know, and, and the bummer is if nobody is going to tell me what to do, then eventually my body will force me to do something. And um, that is what happened to me a couple of years ago. I had just been a terrible year. It was just 2019 was a terrible year. And my kid was sick unto death in the hospital. And it was a healthy, healthy person goes to the hospital and they don't know what's wrong with them. And then, you know, they're having emergency surgery. And then 31 days later, they leave the hospital. It was the worst thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I didn't process it. I just figured once he was better, he was good. And now my job is still to maintain the pack and make sure everybody else gets therapy and everybody else has what they need. And I didn't do any of it. And then we had some other health issues came up with different extended family. And I was like, going, 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 going. And um, turn of the year happened. And I was going to help my sister-in-law do some things because she was going through some stuff. And my husband and I were going to go on. I was going to give myself one week. I was giving myself one week to get myself together so that I could go on and do all the things I need to do for my pack. And we flew down to Florida and my husband was going to do a work trip and I was just along and I was going to walk to the beach and live my best life and have a wonderful time and relax and calm the heck down. And my back started hurting on the flight and it just got worse and worse and worse until I was at one o'clock in the morning. I woke up my husband and I said, oh, you have to take me to the ER right now because I have never had pain that bad. And I thought, is it a kidney stone? Do I have spinal cancer? Is it a compression fracture? And I get to the hospital and they're doing all their things. And basically I am so tightly wound up that I have thrown up my back and I am so constipated because I haven't been taking care of myself that it put me in the hospital with the worst pain I've ever had in my life. And I had five babies. So it was just, nice. that was the wake up call for me to where I'm like, if yeah. I do not take care of myself, I cannot take care of my pack. So it's still within the social instinct, Yeah. but it was like, I totally. cannot continue on like this if I do not get a handle on myself. Mm -hmm. 
And then through that, actually, that's my sister and my daughter both introduced me to the Enneagram. And so I think I was starting to access some of that, trying to that self-preservation, trying to integrate it a little bit, even before I knew what the Enneagram was. Because again, I know if I don't get a handle on myself, I can't help my people. And so that was just one of those things that was the pivotal moment for me. And again, I knew when my kids were little, because I had five babies in eight years, and I had a lot of kids. And I just remember thinking, if I do not figure out how to take care of myself and get some sleep, I'm going to die. This is not good. I can't continue on like this. But when I threw my back out, that was like the pivotal moment for me where I'm like, I can now see the trajectory of where I will be in 10 and 20 and 30 years health-wise and physically, if I don't make some changes now. And that was my huge wake-up call. I appreciate that. Boy, it got really vulnerable and really honest here. And um, and this is what I appreciate so much. And I think for a lot of us, it is what ends up happening. Oftentimes, we go and go and go, playing our strong hand in the game, and then it stops working for us. And that's when we say, oh, maybe I need to do something here. But I also believe that it is there to serve. You know, your, your neglected instinct is there to serve you. It's there to serve you in, in the best ways and for you to be able to flow from the gift of your social intelligence, your social instinct. And so um, I appreciate you illustrating that really well. Thank you so much to each of you for uh, having been on this panel and sharing as openly as you have all these great insights and helping us to understand a little bit more about the social eight. Big thanks to each of you. And uh, this wraps up our time. Thank you. Thanks so much. Bye. 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 So thank you so much for joining us for the social eight panel. And for this season, there is going to be so much to gain and learn from this season We talk about sometimes our personality can be an exaggeration and we want to move towards integration. And that's when we learn and we can borrow from all the different types and all of the different energies in the instincts as well. We want to have a good relationship with each of these instincts. And so we are going to learn a lot through this season. Make sure you are subscribed. If you leave us a review on iTunes, that really helps the algorithm, helps more people find it. And it's very, very helpful to us. So we thank you so much for doing that. You can follow us on Instagram at Art of Growth and go to our website to take the instincts test or to subscribe to our newsletter. So that's really it for this week. And next week we have the nines. So may you integrate your energies. May you integrate your social instinct, your sexual instinct, your self-preservational instinct as you lean into this season in your own growth, your own internal world. May you be expanded so much of the world and the demands on us and the stresses want to make us compressed and then we are reactionary in our type may you be expanded as you integrate in this time in this year in this season grace and growth have a great week my friends